Hello, Siobhan. Welcome to Akbos Chamber. Thank you very much, Niall. Um, thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm very much looking forward to our conversation today. We're going to be talking about a very important, very influential medieval Sufi shrine in what's now eastern Iran, but around 25 miles from the border with Afghanistan, the shrine of Ahmadijan, who lives between 1049 and 1141. And we're going to be looking at not just Sufism and, let's say, mysticism, but the role of the shrine across a period of centuries in politics and landholding, in agriculture, and even in water management and agrarian systems. So we're going to be in many ways exploring what we might call the infrastructure of medieval Islam and following <laughs> that through to the modern period. So, yeah, we're going to be talking about this medieval Sufi saint then, Sheikh Ahmad of Jam, the town of Jam, where he ends up at least. And moreover, we'll be talking about then this shrine complex, the many buildings of that emerged around his tomb near the Afghan border of Iran today. So can you set the scene for us in this town of Jam or Torbati Jam, the tomb of Jam or the shrine of Jam, as it's now called, and the surrounding region of Khurasan, first of all, during Sheikh Ahmad's own lifetime in the late 11th and first half of the 12th century. Okay. I think one way I can do this is to break up the answer into four classes, one being geography of the region, the other being the political rulership of the time, uh, the other religion and ethnicity, and lastly, about religious politics. The religious politics are actually very important. Now, in terms of the geography, <clears throat> excuse me, when we need to kind of forget about the modern maps of Iran and Afghanistan, which tend to cloud our views, because at that time, basically, this is an entire region known as Khorasan. And Khorasan sort of stretched from the east, southeastern side of the Caspian Sea all the way up to um, borders of modern Pakistan, Hindu Kush, and then a bit across the Oxus and all the way down to Bamiyan and to the provinces of uh, Sistan and modern Iran. And Khorasan was divided into four quarters. Marv Quarter, with the capital in Marv, which is now in Turkmenistan, Bakh, eastern, Iran, uh, eastern Afghanistan, Harad, and Nishapur. And Jam is in the Harad Quarter and was basically ruled out of Harad. Now, in terms of political leadership, from the 1040s, shortly before Hamadi Jam was born, the Seljuk Turks from Central Asia took over country. They were quite instrumental in terms of Islamic history, as well as in fighting the Crusades, and in terms of gaining some control over the Caliph uh, in Baghdad. Now, in religion and ethnicity, there were Zoroastrians there, there were Jews, Christians, and Muslims, who were mostly Sunni. Ethnically, the people were mostly Persians, that is, Iranians or Persian speakers, along with some Turks, mostly from Central Asia, and Arabs who had come in with the early Arab conquests of Iran in the seventh century. Now, the religious currents of Khorasan at the time were very, very complex. So what I will put into a few sentences is uh, hopefully just a pith. Um, there were what I call the mazah, the jurisprudential schools of Islam. 
Sunnia. The Hanafi, the Shafi, the Hanbali, and the Karami were dominant at the time. Karami have seen sort of disappeared or they've been absorbed into other parts. There were the Ismaili Shia who were known in lore, right, thanks a lot to Bernard Lewis, as the assassins. Um, they engaged in political violence against other sects and against the political leadership of Iran. Uh, that is, again, uh, Khorasan, I should say. Now, the Shafi and the Hanafi uh, law schools were often at odds over legal doctrines. And unlike modern academics who disagree on certain things, these chaps actually thought about it. And they engaged sometimes in very great violence. The city of Nishapur, for example, in the late 10th century, early 11th century, was basically torn apart by mobs fighting each other, Hanafi mob versus the Shafi mob. And factions and religious currents were often supported by the ruler of the day, whether it's the Ghaznavids before the uh, Seljuks or then the Seljuks. And last, there are the Sufis. And the Sufis, you know, this one term, it's an umbrella term, it tends to cover a lot of different mystical currents with a lot of different uh, intellectual viewpoints and approaches to Islamic, uh, to mysticism, to that dimension of Islam that seeks to find the path to God through other means. Now, Ahmadi Jam was born in 1049 into this febrile environment. He was born in the town of Namak in uh, Khorasan, and he eventually settled in Jam. Now, Jam was at the time probably just a tiny village, and the city of Jam, or Tarbati Jam, which is basically means the mausoleum of the Sheikh of Jam, um, is a lovely little town now, but it sits in this plain. There are the mountains to the northeast and to the southwest. And you know the weather is actually very salubrious. It can be cold in the winter, but it's fairly pleasant, hot but pleasant in the summer. So that hopefully covers some of the uh setting that you that you brought up. Well thank you for setting up this 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 place and, and this time and in Khurasan, this region then that, as you said, has four quarters and the terms coming from the old Persian word Khurshid, the sun, this is the, the land of the rising sun, the eastern parts of the Islamic world, at least seen by earlier Arab peoples moving eastwards. But of course, by the 11th century, Khurasan is very much at the, the center of the Islamic world, is a sort of a flourishing intellectual center, indeed, mystical, legal, and institutional sort of center of, uh, of much of the, the world of Islam and in the 11th and 12th century, in Sheikh Ahmad Ijam's time. So <laughs> let's turn to Sheikh Ahmad himself, both in terms of what we know about him and how we know it. So, Siobhan, can you tell us about Sheikh Ahmad's life as revealed in his Persian hagiographies, the saintly biographies about him, and, and how that life, and indeed these textual lives, helped turn him into a saint? Okay. Uh, intellectually, Ahmed was very much a product of Khorasan. The Khorasan that I described is having all of these uh, sectarianism, different religious ideas, you know, and the languages and the people. Now he witnessed, certainly, and probably even engaged in sectarianism. 
And his views are certainly influenced because we know this from his many writings that he reflects this Khorasanian milieu, milieu of his time. Different the Hanafi views, the Shafi views, the Karami views, this type of Sufism, that type of Sufism, it's all in there and the political currents as well. So now just a little bit about his biography that we do know because as things go with saints, there is biography and then there's hagiography and trying to separate A from B is not always easy and a historian has to be kind of judicious in doing it. So let me start by saying what we do know. He was around the age of 40 when he moved to uh, Java. And this would be about 1089 or 1090, <clears throat> excuse me. He had moved to the town of Buzjab, which is near Jam, uh, but apparently, his preaching was incendiary, and he was accused of having uh, of fermenting sectarians. So the town elder, a rais, meaning chief, asked him very politely to leave town, which he did. And this is when he relocated to John. Now John was probably just a tiny little village at the time. He settled down there. He built a mosque. He built a panaka, which is a Sufi hospice is basically a teaching institution. It's not much else. It can be a lodge. They, it's sort of, a, in some ways, a protean term. Um, he developed a following of people who took to his teachings, disciples. But then he also made a very famous disciple. And this was the Seljuk Sultan, Sanja, a very famous uh, Seljuk Sultan. Sanja died in 1157. And uh, Ahmed's, uh, I think his following was probably very small, but he, having a prominent political leader supporting him kind of probably brought more followers and some prominence to him. Now, Ahmed was what in today's terms is a hellfire preacher. You know, he, his teaching showed that he, you know, fired. And uh, he would harass people enjoying music, dance, and wine. Now, he was very mean to Zoroastrians. And I, there's some suspicions that his ancestors had been Zoroastrians in Khorasan and had converted to Islam. And maybe that's why he was particularly mean-spirited towards Zoroastrians. So he, he went to kind of a quest to uh, bar people from enjoying alcohol. And alcohol, as you know, is not prohibited to non-Muslims. So Jews, Christians, Zoroastrians can enjoy uh, alcohol. And this is still the law, by the way, in modern Iran. So he would break into these wedding parties and, you know, break musical instruments and uh, pour away wine. But he, I will get into this issue of what is saint and what is, you know, in a, in a jiffy, Ahmed's prominence and sainthood, I think, comes a lot from his association with Sultan Sanjar and the miracles that he supposedly performed, one of which involves Sanjar, as I shall explain. Now, a sainthood, uh, for those who are aware of the Catholic process, usually involves uh, miracles and the but it's also a complicated process on how somebody becomes a saint. 
in modern times, and I just go, oh, there are committees, and and then somebody's, you know, eventually declared in saint. However, in Islam, this there is no such system. Or any man or woman can become a saint by popular acclamation. If the people, the community, think so-and-so is a saint, in time, he or she becomes a saint. Now, however, in Islam, there is no word for saint. This is a, in a Christian term that basically I am using so that we kind of have an understanding of what a person is. In Islam, saint is just called a friend of God, of Vali Allah. A friend of God, it is believed, is someone who can act as an intercessor, to intercede on behalf of somebody on earth, who prays up and says, oh, Ahmed, can you please help me with my problem? Can you please take it to God and ask for God's help? And this, the word, uh, Wali Allah comes is found in the Quran often, but in, in one verse, for example, it says God loves his friends and they love him. And so this is one of the things that people have, have a feeling is if we do have a friend in Ahmed who can intercede on my behalf, then uh, <clears throat> I may get what I'm hoping to get. So Ahmed supposedly, I shouldn't say supposedly, performed miracles. He hailed you know, he healed ailments, he cured infertility. There's a long list of things that he has done. Uh, this book called The Colossal Elephant, edited by um, Franklin Lewis and the Muayyad, Heshmet Muayyad, which actually does have a listing of the, uh, of the different uh, miracles he performed. And it includes saving crops, punishing enemies, fighting with the Ismaili, Ismaili Shia. And one very big one, which was saving king from assassins. And the king in question here is of course Sanja. And the miracle is San Ahmed discovers a plot by one chap to poison Sultan Sanja. He saves the Sultan. But the would-be assassin flees. And so Sanja and the army pursue this chap. But and they get into battle. But at the battle Sanja is about to lose and his men are about to be scattered. Then Ahmed intervenes here and he rallies Sanja's troops. They defeat the would-be assassin, capture him and bring him back in chains. So this is a very big uh, miracle. And there are several other things as well. So these helped uh, make him a saint. Now, in the post-enlightenment world, um, and that's certainly true of scholars and non-scholars. People tend to poo-poo the concept of, of miracles. Uh, but I think, um, irrespective of how we feel, or an individual might be, whether they're Muslim, Christian, doesn't really make a difference. What we feel about uh, miracles, if we are studying Muslims who believe in miracles, then we must accept these as truths because they believe these are true. And there are thousands of of Ahmed's devotees over eight centuries who continue to believe in his list of miracles. And they will talk about this as if this were something that is a fact. So we, we're studying them, then we must you know, accept this. And the last thing I'll just say is, um, since we're talking about Latin standards of, and processes of, of 
canonization, uh, by Latin standards, Ahmed is a very unlikely candidate for sainthood. Uh, he was a very mean-spirited person. He was fractious even with his children and vindictive. And he married many more times than Islamic law allowed. And he fathered 42 children. Yeah, 42. But he was accepted as a, as a saint, possibly during his lifetime, but certainly in the years after his death to today, he is very much considered a saint. So we get in this picture of of this figure, this fractious figure, as you said, who is known for his incendiary preaching and his sectarian views in what is, after all, a quite sectarian milieu there of the various different law schools, the various different mystical theologies that are emerging there around Khorasan. But he finds this very useful patron, if that's the right word, with Sultan Sanjar. Or indeed, they're one another's patrons, I suppose, in, in different ways, trading miraculous protection for perhaps more, more material forms of patronage. And, and in this way, Ahmad Ijam is really sort of the man on the spot, the man at the right time, because these, these Salchuk Turks, of whom Sultan Sanjar then is one of the leaders, this is the period when they're moving westwards across Persia, across now Iran. And in 1071, there'll be this famous battle at Manziket, isn't it, when the, the Salchuks open up Anatolia, what's nowadays Turkey, to Turkish settlement. And at this time, Sultan Sanjar, sorry, Ahmad Ijam is about 21, 22. So he's really hit the sort of the right time uh, in this period. And as you've written in your book, then this will help uh, Ahmad Ijam gain this, this reputation and this kind of epithet as being the protector of the realm protector of the the Seljuk realms but also the other sultanates and kingdoms and empires that will flourish in the region thereafter and what's helping here isn't it as you talk through in your book and as you mentioned is is the particular hagiography of Mahmoud Ghaznavi the Makamati Jandapil the 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 spiritual stations of the living elephant this extraordinary phrase this extraordinary epithet that brings up this notion of great power and strength and perhaps also wrath and anger. If any of us have seen a, an elephant in, a, in in fury, we'll kind of get that sense. So could you tell us a bit more about this particular hagiography and indeed maybe some of these, these epithets, whether as protector of the realm or as the, the living elephant? Sure. Um, there are interesting views on the Makamat, you know, the which is the one that was translated by Hishmet Moyayat that I mentioned earlier. Um, there are some in Jam who tell me, well, it's got some stories in there, you know, don't really use all of it. And the reason for it is that there is some embarrassment in modern eyes to some of these stories about him chasing, um, having extra wives, you know, having so many kids and doing certain things. The modern sensibilities being what they are, if, even his devotees today look at this and say, it's not exactly good for public consumption about our guy because it make our guy look good. Because when it was written centuries earlier, it seemed okay. Now, your second part of your, your, your question, um, I think that this incident with Sanjar, where he was sort of his protector, was embellished in later years. 
because we will talk a bit about the shrine, I know, later on, but what happened is after Ahmed died, basically there was a period where it was quite flat in terms of his 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 cult. And it wasn't until the Mongols in the twelve you know twelve hundreds that his name became prominent again and was found in other literatures about Sufism and about uh his, you know, basically Islam teachings. And this is, I think, I mean, I can't prove it, but I think there was some good marketing by his heirs, his uh, uh, the members of his family who controlled his legacy and promoted his legacy, where they sold him, marketed him, I should say, to the Tajik kings of Harad as he can be your guardian. You know, he can be your protector. There is a story about Sanjar where he, where Ahmed tells Sanjar, I was appointed by, you know, basically he's, you know, I was put in charge, I forget the exact phrase, but I was put in charge of looking out, looking out for you. And who puts him in charge? Of course, he means God put me in charge. Now, this is kind of a story I suspect that was happily promoted to the Card Kings, then later to Tamerlane, and then to Tamerlane's heirs, and even to the Mughal kings, early Mughal kings of India, as Ahmed is the protector of kings. And so you support Ahmed, and he will look out for your kingdom and for your health and for your families. So yeah, so we have this, this picture then, really, of, of the afterlife, the textual, the hagiographical afterlife of the saints, and indeed his... His biography, his life is expanding. The stories, the feats, the spiritual feats to translate perhaps that makamat, uh, the miracles in short. These are changing and expanding in the decades and the centuries after his death. But there's also crucially, as you really focus on in your book, the other type of afterlife of so many of the great saints of medieval Islam, which is the architectural afterlife, particularly the, the shrine of the saint. So the saint become endures, but also remains accessible, not just through texts and stories, but also through this architectural presence that is very common, of course, among many other saints. But one of the reasons I, I chose uh, to invite you to Akbar's Chambers was really because your, your, your book focuses so well on a shrine that is so important that the whole town emerges around it. Indeed, to this day, the town of Kodbati Jam, as you've mentioned, means the mausoleum, the town of, uh, sorry, the, the mausoleum, the tomb of Ahmadijam, and this town develops around it. So we have this, the Sheikh himself, who died 1141, and the miraculous feats, the stories told after his death. And then we have this shrine complex, which makes his presence, in a sense, his miraculous presence, permanent and accessible for later pilgrims, indeed later statesmen and sultans, as you might tell us about us. And that shrine, in various different ways, political, but also, as perhaps you'll tell us, agricultural uh, reasons as well, has this much more enduring impact on the surrounding Khorasan region. So I wonder if you could take us on sort of an imaginary tour, as though you're sort of a tour guide and we're kind of going in your imaginary presence around the shrine at Jam or Torabati Jam. John, both in its medieval heyday, but also today. Okay, 
No, Ahmed died for over a century. There was really nothing around his tomb. It was an open tomb. I mean, open tomb meaning there was no big uh, cupola or anything built above it. And then, very interestingly, it was 1236, about 14, 15 years after the Mongol invasions, this building called the Gunbad, which is basically a dome, was built a little bit behind his tomb. We have absolutely no idea who, who built it. And there's a lot of speculation that the Mongol commander, the Mongol big shot, had funded it. It was a very strange time for somebody to be putting money down to build this Gunbad. Anyway, this Gunbad is really a beautiful big dome. And this dome became literally and figuratively central to the shrine complex because over the centuries, new components were added that often tended to connect to this, such as a moss or another dome. And then there is Grand Yvonne. For those who don't know, an Yvonne is, in this case, 88 feet high. It's a big, beautiful arch. And it's decorated with tiles and calligraphy. And it actually acts as a beacon for travel. Because what they will see is jutting out 90 feet in the air with no large buildings to cover it, of course, as they do in this day and age. They say, oh, there is a shrine or a mosque out here. I see this big Yvonne and I can find shelter or some place in which to pray. Now, the shrine's expansion, uh, it really began in the 14th century. There were three spurts, like 1320, 1336, and 1361, when bits and pieces were added, like I mentioned, the, the Grand Yvonne, but also another hospice, the Madrasa. And at this point, it is now become a shrine complex. I think of this place as about rectangular, very large rectangular thing covering several acres. There are gardens around, and then you have the town kind of growing up around it with the bazaars and the shops and all these various things. It expanded even more in the 15th centuries in the reign of Tamerlane and his successors, the Timurid period as it is known, after Timur or Tamerlane. And Tamerlane himself, and I'll get a bit to, uh, more into him and his visit to the shrine. He donated to hospices or tunnels. So this has now become a very large complex and a teaching institution. In fact, it has had a teaching institution in there off and on for hundreds of years, right down to today, where there are two active um, madrasas, one for, for males and one for, for women. And then madrasa, has various connotations these days, but basically it's a school or a seminary or Islamic college, whatever you want to call it. And they teach both Islamic curricula today and modern curricula as well. In the old days, of course, people tended to study mostly Islamic curricula. So the heyday, as you mentioned, sort of ends around beginning in the 1500s when Iran began its march from being majority Sunni to majority Shia when the Safavid dynasty took control in 1501. The shrine of Ahmadijan is and still is, was and still is very much Sunni. Uh, established. In fact, the town that you mentioned is now well over 100,000 people, plus thousands more in the surrounding area. 
And I remember before I first visited there, I remember Lonnie died talking about Robert E. John and talking about it being a very adamantly Sunni uh, town. I don't know what they mean entirely with Adamant. But it's a very Sunni town, very, you know, comfortable and all of that. Now, getting back to taking a tour of this place, I think we were touching on some of the things that you mentioned about how shrine can seem personal. And I think that's a really good observation now because Louis Dupree, whose work I'm sure you know, was a great anthropologist of and student of Afghanistan. He, something he wrote about that I read years ago really touched me, which is, is about how people sometimes find the one, two, three of religion kind of monotonous, meaning pray five times, fast, do this, do that, and how they don't necessarily connect to God in that respect. But the shrines tend to offer a personal connection to God. And this is really true of what is going on in a place like Robert E. John. So you have these people who see this sign where Ahmed's buried and where other people have chosen to be buried, including one of the card kings of Herat, who was murdered by the Mongols. His body was carted to uh, John and buried there. So many other famous people, including one of Timur's, uh, Tamerlane's commanders, who wanted to be buried there, but in circumstances was not. So people want to be buried next to the grave of a saint because they believe they get baraka or blessings from being in his, within his presence. Even sanctified grave will give them some sort of blessings. And people come there, enjoy um, the entire sanctuary of John. Like today, you will see people coming in there not just to pray or to, you know, say prayers around the grave. They do that. But on Friday, the Juma, the day off, you'll find little families coming over. There's a big harmony jump park around there. There's picnic. They'll enjoy themselves. They'll go inside. Some, you know, some kids might just play around somewhere uh, there as well. And then, you know, parents might just take bring the Quran with them and they're going to one of the buildings and just read the Quran because it's just kind of believed that they're, you know, just not reading the Quran only at home, but reading it there within the proximity of Ahmed's grave in one of his buildings. That day is some kind of a special, specialness, I would say, uh, of, of that relationship. And it's also one of the reasons why teaching is often done in these places, because there is also a certain belief that there's a certain special to studying within the confines of a holy place. We see this in Mecca, Medina, Jerusalem, and also in some of the other shrines around the world. Now, in terms of taking on a tour, you know, this shrine is, you know, we just have to visualize this uh, place, you know, this large complex, rectangle, open spaces, buildings along the side, on the sides, with Grand Ivan jutting out almost 90 feet into the air. And kings and emirs and big shots coming from all over in order to get their blessings. Now, one of these was Tamerlane, who, or Timur. He was a very special and he also kind of believed in 
collecting as much baraka or blessing some Sufis as he could. But yet it's also a political thing. So the Sufi sh the sheikhs have known at that point are very powerful. And so he sort of needed their blessings, both temporal blessings and spiritual blessings, before he began his conquest of Iran. So he pops over there and gets a tour, he says his prayers, he makes some benefactions, and so he can just picture this world conqueror in walking around the shrine. And he was not alone because his son, Sharach, his successor, moved his capital to Herat, and he was a devotee of the shrine, as he was of a couple of other places that he visited. And then you move fast forward a few more, you know, another century, basically, and Homayun, who is the uh, Mongol, sorry, Mughal Indian Timurids, or Mughal emperors, he has lost his kingdom. He comes there. He's also a descendant of Amrijan on the mother's side. On the father's side, he has Timur's blood as well. He comes there for He comes with his wife, who is a descendant of Amrijan. And they come there to get blessings, to get their kingdom back, but also because their son, Akbar, who later becomes the emperor Akbar the Great, was captive, had been kidnapped by his uncle, Askari, and held hostage. And of course, Omayun gets his kingdom back, gets his son back, and of course, the Jarmis can pat themselves on the back and say, we did it. So people come there basically to venerate, but also to get to know their God as a personal God. Uh, and I think that really rings true, actually, with when I, I, as you were talking, Siobhan, I was thinking back to the time, I think about 25 years ago now, when when I went out to Kodabati Jam. And, uh, and as you said, there's this, as one visits nowadays and gets a sense, you know, it, it, it is one of the most completely preserved medieval shrine complexes in, in the, that have survived you know, in, intact, albeit now restored very nicely. And one gets this sense. It reminded me of, of, let's say, you know, where I'm from in England. You know, it's the country churchyard where one might go and sit and relax and read. Thomas Gray's Elegy written in the English country churchyard. You know, it's, that's what a churchyard does. It's a space of a garden and with with trees or indeed with, with burial places and sometimes of the notable dead. That comes up in, in Gray's poem. And... I think there's a notable distinction here with, with mosques. Mosques are so often in the Islamic world, urban institutions that don't have a garden or lands attached or even burial grounds. It's these shrine complexes that have that. So the places of, you know, when I was there, I could see of picnicking, of perhaps reading the Quran or maybe even the newspaper. It's an urban space for relaxation and, and perhaps meditation. But it's also crucially, as you said, a place of, of, one can access intercession. One can have the Saint Ahmadijan intercede this crucial Islamic concept of Shafa'a. It's mentioned in the Quran. It's a Quranic concept, albeit in the Quran. No one can intercede without God's will. But but still, and, and many Muslims over the centuries have debated, well, does that mean there's no intercession? The saints and the Sufis can't intercede, or indeed they can, albeit with, with the divine will. So as you've told us then, many ordinary people, but also some of the most important names in medieval and early modern Islamic history, 
whether Timur Tamerlane, the last of the great Eurasian world conquerors, or Humayun, the Mughal emperor. These are among the pilgrims and indeed ultimately the patrons. Because we've got this process that's visible really in, in what you're telling us about, the way there's this textual and architectural interplay. The texts, the stories of miracles, they attract pilgrims. Some of them become patrons, <laughs> the likes of Timur, and they endow more architecture. And this in turn makes these great buildings, as you mentioned, the, the Iwan, the great sort of arched uh, verandas, I suppose, in a way, or the Gunbad, the dome is visible across the valley. The, the Gunbad, as you all know very well, is, is a term, the, the dome, it's a synonym in many parts of the, the Eastern Islamic world for simply the name of a shrine, because that's what you see, that's what calls you in. So we have all of these dimensions of interplay then between the architectural, the textual, the miraculous, and in many ways, the, the everyday of sitting and, and, and reading and relaxing in this tranquil urban space. But we don't often think about mystics and perhaps Sufi shrines being also involved with the, the more mundane business of growing fruit and cereals. But as you explain in your book, The Sufi Saint of Jam, Sheikh Ahmed Shrine was really deeply involved in what you've called agro and hydro management. So what were then these perhaps less obvious and less familiar at least in the modern day, links between sainthood and shrines and agriculture. Sure. We need to kind of go back to what the political situation was from the 1200s. Mongols visited, and that caused a great deal of damage. Now, before the Mongols, Herat Quarter of Khorasan was very uh, wealthy uh, and a great agricultural producer. There was abundant water either above ground or below ground. And it was very well known for, you know, and also rich soils, which is also very important for agriculture. So the Hard Quarter was actually very well known for producing some great vegetables, cereals, fruits, and nuts. Even today, the last time I was there was before the Taliban takeover in, in Herat, that is, and you just walk down into the markets, you see all these big, rich vegetables, really beautiful. And this is what this place was. But see, agriculture then, more so than it is today, is not just about feeding people. Agriculture, especially grains, that is rice, wheat, barley, they can be stored for long periods of time. And they could be used for barter, or they could be sold cash. So you often find examples of people being compensated not just in cash, I might say so many dinars or so many gold dinars, uh, plus so many, you know, what works out to the term karvar, which works out several hundred kilos of uh, grain. That's his compensation. So this is a very prosperous area, but then the Mongol invasions not only brought in great amount of destruction and death, but also led to people fleeing the area. When they fled, the farms fell fallow and became overgrown. And water distribution systems, you know, whether it's overground canals or underground canals, cisterns, dams, sluices and such, were either ruined or they just simply fell into disrepair. You must keep in mind also is that the materials used at the time would be 
combinations of mud and mortar, not really concrete and things like that that we use today. And this is also an area that's prone to earthquakes. There's a regular maintenance is required. So anyway, around the 1300s, the card kings of Iraq plus the Mongol rulers of Iran who had been who had actually installed the card kings at Iraq, but the Mongol rulers were ruling out of Tabriz, which is in the west of Iran and Azerbaijan province now. They want to revive agriculture. So they came up with these ideas about distributing land to people, fellow land or unclaimed land to people who would be willing to take undertake the costs and the risks themselves of developing the farms, which also means hiring people uh, and building villages for the peasants to live in. And there's a lot of cash outlay up front. But there's a provision also of Islamic law that says those who, who revivify abandoned farmlands can get to keep them. So there's an incentive for people to put the money down up front to, to revive dead lands because down the road, they would eventually own this land. And so the Mongols and the court also offered tax breaks. And so there's also an aspect here of trying to repopulate a region that had been depopulated. Because people would say, hey, there are jobs going you know, farm jobs. Now, along with the farm jobs come the other job because surplus wealth is used to pay the craftsmen, the artisans, the pot, you know, the potters and the carpenters and everybody. So little by little you find all of this going. So what happens here is now you have the Sufis of John have some lands. Now this is policy that began with the Ilkhanids, but really took off under the Timurids of endowing or giving as land grants uh, properties to shrines, to mosques, to, to madrasas, and to hospices. And so by the end of the Timurid period, which is around 1506, just as example, the shrine of Abu Said Abu in Maihana, which is today in Turkmenistan, oops, sorry, in Turkmenistan. And um, this chap, uh, Imam Ali in Bach, and Ahmadi Jam in Tarbati Jam, and Abdul Ansari in Harad, they actually became huge, large families. They owned the lands, they owned the canals, they owned the water distribution systems, but they weren't being given all this stuff just for fun. Because I mean, for one, you know, one thing is, you know, the rulers can say we are being very pious because we have all the wealthy individuals before they die can, you know, have an endowment saying, okay. We're going to give all this property to the Friday mosque or this kind of call, this madrasa or this shrine, and that brings them piety. But there were very practical reasons about reviving the economy and bringing people in. But there was also more. The second aspect of hydro management and water management is that these shrines also had social responsibilities. They weren't just there to pocket money and get rich for themselves. Of course, you know, individual sheikhs certainly did. And the shrine became wealthy and you can see this in the architecture and the art. But they actually uh, use this money, not all of it, of course, but some of it, 
not only provide employment, but also provide what we would today call social services. Because there were no welfare programs. So those who were indigent or sick or elderly could always get help. And their shrines that had you know, what we today call soup kitchens. And some even had bimaristans, uh, shifas, which are hospitals or clinics. Uh, the shrine of Jam did not, as far as I know, have a clinic or a hospital. But this is not uncommon, that they were providing some sort. Of, and they also would give money in terms of crisis. Like the sheikhs of Jam, for example, there was a famine in the part of Khorasan. The sheikh distributed uh, grain to all these people gratis. It's just like, this is what is expected of them. There's even an expression called feed the people. And feed the people. It's actually still a current expression in, in, in Afghanistan. Um, it's not just literally feed the people, but take care of them. It means to provide them with any sort of tangible, intangible help that they can you have assume a responsibility. There are, I can give an example, for instance, it could just be somebody who worked in the house as a domestic or as a babysitter in Ayah. So now the child grows up, he's 50 years old, but the IR is, you know, maybe in the 70s or 80s. That doesn't mean he has forgotten his responsibilities to this person. There is a social obligation. This continues, not just in the Islamic East, but also in other parts of the East, like India and so on, where people are expected to, to take care. And so lastly, I would say today, like the, the two madrasas at John, um, they do some of this as well where they do have scholarships for needy students. So this is there not just to educate and to charge fees, but if your family can't afford it, then you're certainly welcome to study here. So these are other ways. Actually, one last thing related to that is that's also another thing that the shrines do in the past was provide education. So if a child learned to read or write back in 1500s or 1400s, um, chances are they learned at a mosque school or shrine school or at one of these hospitals. These are the people who actually provided this sort of uh, education. So this is helpful. You're giving us this sense then that, that really helps us explain how these, these shrine complexes with so many buildings, but also these tremendous land holdings and the responsibilities over these land holdings of of making sure that they have a sufficient water supply. And you've given us a sense of the logic of that because these are then in a sense, the, the shrine complexes become the, the term I mentioned earlier, sort of the, the infrastructure of medieval Islamic society in a way, really, that there's all sorts of institutional, social, and indeed legal mechanisms that go through them. In early episodes of Akbar's Chamber, we've discussed the, the importance of waq for the Islamic law of endowments of of the, the law of endowment or entrusting property, in particular agricultural property, some as urban property, to typically a religious institution, which then is the institution that has to own it and manage it over the centuries, in theory and often in practice as well, for the common social good of the community at large. As you said, that phrase, feed the people. And, and going back to our earlier discussion, when you were describing the actual geographical setting of, of, of the town of Jam, as it emerges really through this patronage around the shrine and this agricultural renaissance after the Mongol invasions, this is a sort of very rich soils, as you mentioned, but not a lot of rainfall. So it's really important to having these 
these underground uh, water channels, the Khanat or the Khadiz, as they're variously called, which are complex engineering feats running for many miles at very gentle gradients, bringing water from the runoff of the surrounding hills and mountains. But they have to be maintained. So again, like you know, like this again, this sense of infrastructure. The infrastructures need maintenance, and they need maintenance over periods of centuries. I mean, you know, the kind of the Victorian sewers of London and and Paris are often celebrated. There's a, a famous French historian, Alain Corma, who wrote a book about the sewers of Paris. But but here we have, in some cases, eight hundred year old agricultural channels that are still you know functioning through maintenance that that bring fresh water rather than sewage. So yeah, there's a lot going on here. But you've also mentioned the importance of Herat. So though we opened up with, or at least I opened up by framing the town of Sorbatijam as being now in eastern Iran and and 25 miles now from the Afghan border, as you mentioned, in the medieval period, it's in that quarter, that, that section of, of the Khorasan region, which falls under Herat, the major cultural center in what's now Western Afghanistan. So can you tell us then, since yeah, Jam was ruled from Herat for so long, what does the shrine tell us about the religious and cultural history of the rulers and citizens of Herat? Okay, uh, since we should talk more about the region rather than just either Herat or Jam, what we can say is that from the Mongol conquest, which brought about a great deal of ruin, there comes a revival as well. This is something that I have mentioned in my second book, which is the history of Herat, um, about the destruction and the, and the revival of Herat. Now Herat and that region, which we call the Herat Quarter, was revived, was revived. Lots of shrines, mosques, hospices in such were either built or renovated after it fallen into disrepair. And so the Jum Shrine is one of the most, uh, most important, but not the uh, most important, the one in Herat of the Shrine of Abdul Ansari, which was uh, revived under the Timurids in the 1400s, became really a huge landowner and very important, contributed to the local economy as well as the spiritual life of Herat. So that is a very big shrine. So we look at all of these things. So there are scores of little shrines, big shrines, major shrines around the Harad quarter, and they all contribute in some ways, uh, major and minor, to education through the madrasas, as well as through the kanakas, the hospices, as well as the spiritual life of Syria. So what it does tell us, I would say, A, um, venerations of saints, or pilgrimages to shrines small and large, far and wide, was actually a very common practice from kings down to commoners. Um, you know, Shah Rukh, his uh, successors who did this, Timur did it. And a lot of people, these shrines were very, very popular and very well attended. Actually, these shrines are growing. Even to this day, there is still a very popular tradition of shrine venerations and upkeep of these shrines because even if people don't particularly go to them they make you know the government of her uh, in the region whatever government it is at the time has done its best to preserve the architecture and outside organizations have done the same as well 
Now, quite a few madrasas, second uh, item of B, I should say, is the Herat quarter, saw a great deal of madrasas being built. This includes Shafi as well as Hanafi madrasas. There probably were even Hanbali, but we're not too sure. There's probably even Shia madrasa, but I'm not 100% sure because, you know, we can't really find the documentary evidence. We just can kind of glean something from sentences here and there, but you can't say something. Uh, don't have something that a historian can say, I have the proof, you know, that sort of thing. So we don't, what we can say is there was strong Shafi and Hanafi, but the Hanafi path appears to have been uh, the more dominant part. The city of, the area of Isfizan, which is south of Iraq, for example, we know was Shafi redoubt. It was quite popular Shafi area. So the third one I'll see is Sufism was very popular. Um, not only were Sufi teachings being taught in Sufi hospices and shrines and various, and they were even being taught inside the madrasas. And this is actually one of the interesting things it's in the 1300s to the 1400s period is, um, you know, when you think of madrasas, think of these stuffy little um, academic institutions and the head of the institution being told, oh, well, in addition to Hadith and Quran, you now must teach Sufi stuff. Sufi stuff? Good God. Not me, you know, but they did. It's because there was a demand for it. Um, and so you find in the Kanakas, they were being taught Hadith and Quran and Islamic law and all of these things, but also Sufi stuff. And the same thing was going on. In fact, there were certain points, I would say, the differences are very few between the madrasa and the Kanaka, except that people who went to the madrasas were often looking to go into a career in, in Islamic law, such as being a judge or moving on to something else. So... Anyway, this basically is the picture coming up to the 1500s, because after the 1500s, things change around that region. That's a subject for perhaps another discussion somewhere else. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's been so very helpful of really opening up for us from just the life of one medieval figure, Sheikh Ahmad of Jam, that we get this whole long-standing infrastructure that survives ultimately right through to the present day. And as you discuss in, in your book, perhaps surprisingly is actually one the patronage of the Islamic Republic of Iran, which is usually considered to be not a uh, pro-Sunni or indeed a pro-Sufi uh, form of Islamic statehood. Dr. Shivan Mahendra Raja, thank you so much for speaking to us in Akbar's Chamber. Thank you, Now.